It was Christmas time in Los Angeles. The year was 1902. The Los Angeles Times sent a reporter out to the saloon line intersection of First Street and Los Angeles Street, or, more commonly known to the Times readers, the Hobo Corner, epicenter of Victorian Los Angeles' Skid Row. It was the toughest night of the year on the Hobo Corner, the sensationalist reporter wrote. The tenderloin was literally swarming with tramps. Most of them were beastly drunk, and the rest were sorry they weren't. They were filthy dirty, some of them fairly squirmed with tenants, their steady companions, as it were. This was the patronizing, romanticized, and often very cruel language that Angelinos used to describe the itinerant population. This population had arrived in the city with the coming of the railroads. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many a rootless people, a majority of them men, flooded into sunny L.A. looking for a new beginning. Once here, they often found themselves jobless, friendless, and hopelessly addicted to alcohol or drugs. L.A.'s reaction to Skid Row would bring out the absolute worst and the most charitable best in Angelinos. You could say the same thing of Angelinos of the present day. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. In 1876, Los Angeles was insanely proud. They had become the end of the line of the Transcontinental Railroad. The railroads were constructed east of L.A.'s historic core. That year also saw the opening of the main Southern Pacific Rail Yard and a passenger terminus, known as River Station, which is now the site of the L.A. State Historic Park. In 1888, it was joined by the arcade station at 4th and Alameda. Thousands of men, many displaced veterans of the Civil War, began to ride the rails, stowing away in empty boxcars and jumping trains. As a result, many cities across America saw a great increase in the number of transient visitors. They tended to congregate nearby the rail yards in cheap hotels, saloons, and brothels which sprung up to service them. In 1889, it was reported that 18 so-called tramps had been arrested at the Southern Pacific Yard in one morning. These tramps would be forced to work on the chain gang, ironically building roads for the city of Los Angeles. L.A. leaders knew who to blame for this tramp harvest, the increased mobility offered by the railroads. Those who have looked into the question, the Los Angeles Times intoned, claim that the railroads are largely responsible for the annual hobo curse of L.A., Angelinos also blamed their own glorious weather and abundance, always eager to boost the city, even when they were complaining about it. As one L.A. Times reporter observed in 1889, Southern California is getting to be something of a mecca for the genus tramp of colder localities. There is something very tempting to those gentry 
in a climate where the sun furnishes about as much fuel as is needed for comfortable warmth, and where great orange orchards are convenient to ease their hunger. It wasn't just Southern California that was faced with this new influx of itinerant visitors. All across the country, a new slang vocabulary emerged to describe this new facet of American life. The so-called hobo was the creation of the railroads, a seeker who lived to travel and to see new faces. The so-called flybum was a city dweller who lived in cheap hotels and kept alive by handouts from religious and charitable organizations. Then there was the dynamiter, who made his meager living as a journeyman laborer. These men found ample work in the agricultural fields and vineyards that surrounded L.A. By the 1880s, the place many of these men congregated was the Hobo Corner and the neighborhood surrounding it. On the edge of the Red Light District, which was known as Hell's Half Acre, the corner was a stone's throw away from the plaza and only a little over a mile from the Southern Pacific Yard. The men who congregated here spent their lives in single-room occupancy hotels on L.A. Street and at bars like the notorious Original Mug Saloon on Main Street, which one visitor described as little more than a great bare room with a bar along one side. It had an old decrepit piano with the keys scorched and stained where the lighted cigarettes of bygone artists have been laid as they performed. Occasionally, someone strolls in, berry-nosed, bleary-eyed, and half-drunk, and sits down at the piano, and the soggy little joint rings with the mournful melody that tells of a wrecked life. By the turn of the century, first in Los Angeles was already legendary in L.A. lore. According to one reporter from the L.A. Times, with the exception of the Barbary Coast in San Francisco, this is one of the toughest hangouts in the West. On Christmas Day in 1901, it was reported that dozens of men had been arrested for drunkenness by the end of the holiday. All day long, the corner was so crowded with toughs and bums that one had to fairly elbow one's way through, and you could feel your watch creep up close to you for protection. In the morning, they were reasonably sober, but all of a sudden, they all seemed to get drunk at once. Regulars on the corner became fodder for a very gross kind of man-on-the-street moralizing journalism. Stories were written about one-armed Jack Ryan, an alcoholic bully who was known to terrorize his fellow corner dwellers. There was Parson Williams, the hobo preacher, who occasionally spent time on the chain gang, and a man named Kelly, who was arrested for vague, short for vagrancy, after it was noticed that he was always drunk even though he'd never had job or any money, which was apparently a crime. Overseeing it all was policeman Jack Lennon, who the L.A. Times called the monarch of Hobo Corner. When Jack waves his billy, the corner quells, one reporter for the Times said. When he marches down the dark alleys with firm tread, the hobos shudder. Lennon is a quaint sort of chap, but one of the shrewdest officers on the force. 
that the cleverest of policemen could not fix the alcohol abuse, mental illness, and violence that gripped the corner. Men and women were often carted away to city jails, suffering from what today sounds like schizophrenic episodes. They were then released back onto Hobo Corner, shades of today. A man named Elijah Robinson tried to, quote, clean out the corner when he found a drunk man sleeping in the back of his wagon. When an old man named John Hickey tried to stop him from beating the man, according to the LA Times, Robinson went after Hickey instead. He had a short, stout whip in his hand, and with this he beat the old man's head until the blood flowed. When Hickey had sunk to the ground under the force of the blows, Robinson turned to the crowd and asked if there was anybody else who wanted some. There were no takers, except two policemen. When Robinson saw them coming, he jumped into the buggy and tried to escape. An officer on a wheel raced after him and caught the lines. Robinson tried to whip him off, but the officer held on, and the man suddenly leaped out the buggy and started to run. One of the officers fired a shot, which tore up the dirt at his feet, and Robinson gave himself up. Robinson was subsequently sentenced to 30 days in the nearby city jail. Besides throwing people on the chain gang and occasionally forcing undesirables out of town, the city really did nothing. Neither did most community and social leaders. Don't help this class, one columnist wrote. It's a crime against the community to do it. The folks who populated the corner were often dehumanized to an astonishing degree. The L.A. Times referred to them as scum of the gutters, dirty crows, and two-legged hogs. They were past all feeling, one observer wrote. Nothing you could say would hurt their feelings. Nothing you could say would cause them joy or embarrassment, enthusiasm or grief. They have two emotions left. One is thirst, the other beer. This lack of empathy and government assistance meant that religious and charitable organizations were left to provide food, shelter, and solace. The Union Rescue Mission and the Salvation Army were both originally located near the Hobo Corner. The mission's colorful wagon, pulled by two horses and carrying musicians, hymn singers, and new converts, was a familiar sight on the corner. At a basement boarding house run by God's regular army, many homeless transients found a place to sleep, according to the L.A. Times. The lodging house presents some peculiar features to one who has never been in impecunious circumstances. It is situated in a cellar and contains accommodations for 150 lodgers. The price charged each wayfarer for a bed is one nickel, but those who are lacking even this small sum are permitted to sleep on the benches which occupy the center of the room. The beds, which are simply composed of canvas, swung from wooden frames like hammocks, are 96 in number. These are filled every night with that class of humanity known as tramps. In 1902, the L.A. Times reported, The hobos are killing that particular part of L.A. in which they have settled like a blight. The police would have an easier time down in the Tenderloin if the city would simply put in a few more electric lights. There's seldom any cussedness going on where there is plenty of illumination, Los Angeles Street is as dark as a pocket. Matters were made worse when the Pacific Electric opened a new rail terminus that same year, dropping commuters off into the heart of the city's Tenderloin District. Originally so-called because this area in any city is home to theaters, restaurants, hotels, bars, brothels, and the like, 
and therefore a proverbial juicy cut for blackmail and extortion, the Tenderloin soon came to be a catch-all for any city's high-crime area. The L.A. Tenderloin included Hal's Half Acre and the Hobo Corner area. According to the L.A. Times, No sooner does a hobo hit the town than he makes a beeline for the corner first in L.A. streets. All day long and all night long, this corner is one milling herd of them. It is bad now, but worse during the winter hobo season. Half the people who take the Pasadena, Monrovia, Alhambra cars bore them at the corner of First and Main. Women have to stand there, often for 15 minutes at a time, hearing vile language, shrinking from drunken men who come staggering along. They have to stand in the midst of the sodden river that swirls sluggishly out of the tenderloin. Business has been driven away from that corner and from that part of town because of these loafers. Half the arrests made by police are the drunks on these two corners. The police patrols almost worn a path between the station and the hobo corner. And so it was that the railway that helped give birth to the hobo corner also helped lead to its undoing. By 1906, streetlights had been installed, and a campaign to get transients off the street was initiated. According to the L.A. Times, in the last four months, so fierce an effort has been made to clean out the hobo corner and the bums of Main and First that over 300 arrests have been made. News of the hostile campaign has become known as far east as the Missouri River. The results are apparent. The hobo corner, from being a buzzing hive of vice and toughness, has become deserted. The crowds have gone from Main and First Streets. A woman can now wait there for a car without fear of insult from a drunken bum. But the whitewashing of Hobo Corner was short-lived. By the 19-teens, residents were back on the corner and slowly migrating further east, nearer the arcade depot, and into the area we now know as Skid Row, formerly called Central City East. In 1914, a deeply religious British-born produce merchant named Thomas H.W. Littlecote was appalled by the amount of homelessness and suffering he encountered in transient L.A., we have a conglomeration of riffraff here that is not equaled anywhere I've ever seen. Not barring the New York Bowery flop joints, he exclaimed, according to the Los Angeles Times. With the encouragement of his wife Mary, around 1914 Littlecote began to drive around Hobo Corner and Skid Row at night, rounding up indigents. Once they were in his grasp, Littlecote, who fashioned himself simply Brother Tom, would preach to them the word of Jesus before feeding them soup made with leftover vegetable trimmings from his wholesale fruit business. In June of 1917, Littlecote's organization, which he named the Midnight Mission, found a permanent home. He began to rent a dilapidated building in the heart of Hobo Corner. That same year, his wife Mary died. According to him, her last request was that he keep the mission going. Littlecote's slapdash mission offered a late-night Christian service, a hot midnight meal, and floor space where homeless men could crowd together and sleep. Every man was served, no questions asked. Under the motto of free soap, free soup, and free salvation, all races were welcome, as were the numerous ex-servicemen coming home from World War I. Littlecote greeted all comers with the same refrain, Son, put your feet under the table and eat. Volunteers, including missionary Elizabeth Schofield, the mother of the mission, 
worked punishing hours to care for the men, in conditions that were both chaotic and very unsanitary. In 1921, the L.A. Times reported, The facilities of the mission for the work which it attempts to do are deplorably inadequate. The building, some 20 feet wide and 100 feet long, is a church, banquet hall, and bedroom for the 200 men who jam it to capacity every night. The space occupied by the mission is divided in halves, the part toward the street including the rostrum and chairs used in the services. The other part is filled with long tables flanked by benches and the tiny kitchen. A sink in one corner of this room provides a place where hands may be washed. There is no place, however, where the men may take baths. Neither are there any fumigating tanks for their clothing, nor any public lavatories nearer than the plaza. The result is what you might naturally expect. The mission rooms at night smell to heaven with the stench of foul, unwashed bodies, as the men crowd together on the bare floors or sit nodding in the chairs and some of the more reckless risk losing their shoes by removing them. These conditions, along with police raids, led the landlord to raise the mission's rent by 50% in 1921. But a wave of favorable publicity for Lidicote and a round of fundraising to improve conditions followed, as did such powerful benefactors as the Chandlers, owners of the Los Angeles Times, numerous real estate holdings, and hypocritical moral crusaders. Lidicote was the perfect public figure for the dramatic 1920s. Joining religious charismatics like Amy Simple McPherson, founder of the Foursquare Church and pioneering evangelical celebrity, he was the prototype of the self-aggrandizing modern religious figure. A robust, romantic-appearing figure of a man as Brother Tom, one reporter swooned. With rugged, benevolent features, iron-gray hair worn rather long, and very large and soft brown eyes which spill over with tears very, very often. Newspapers extolled Lidicote's grueling schedule, which included daily visits to the city jail and, like McPherson, frequent hospital stays due to exhaustion. Problematically to today's minds, the hungry were served midnight dinner only after they listened to the nightly sermon. In fact, the one way into the dining hall was through the makeshift graffiti-covered chapel, a writer for the L.A. Times visited one such service in 1923. On Saturday evening, Brother Tom always has charge of the meeting from the middle of the evening on until midnight. He prefers to speak from the floor, on a level with his audience, rather than from the elevation of the platform. Boys, I'm glad to welcome you here tonight. I wonder what you lads have been doing today. How many of you have had your hands in somebody's pockets? How many of you have been eating dope? Oh, I know you. I know you. You're mean as hell, a lot of you boys. Just mean as hell. Yes, and you folks perched up there on the platform. Why, boys, some of those folks up there on the platform, they'll snap at you like a turtle if you give them a chance. And yet they say they're sanctified. The mission received more and more donations, including four showers, rent money, food, and a car christened the Sanctified Ford. Lidicote became known as the Bishop of the Underworld, and was said to be worth more to the city than 100 policemen. Our modern Christian warrior goes forth to war with the dinner pail to back the gospel, one supporter wrote in the L.A. Times. Somehow, we seem to see in Brother Tom a better Christian warrior than the great King Charlemagne. The warrior king would soon move further east to the new heart of Skid Row. To this day, 
The Midnight Mission is a well-oiled social services machine, now located at 601 South San Pedro Street, providing clothing, job training, and alcohol and drug recovery programs. Every year, it shelters thousands of people and serves more than one million meals to the needy. Hobo Corner was eventually completely transformed, and today is a sterile corporate intersection, home to the Hilton Doubletree and the Department of Transportation. Lidicote was eventually pushed out of leadership at the Midnight Mission and died in 1942. And what became of the folks who called the Hobo Corner home? While many probably ended their lives in the skid rows of L.A. or some other town, not all existed forever in gray misery. In 1907, it was reported that several Hobo Corner denizens, including a lunch wagon cook named Old Al, a gambler named Tex, and a loafer named Pison Pete, had made a killing in the boomtown mining camps of Nevada and Eastern California. So it goes in the land of shade and sunny skies. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. This episode is based on a series of articles I wrote for the wonderful Curved LA. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. Next week, join us as we delve into the killer cult known as Fountain of the World. A Table Cakes production. 